Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Processes Podcast. This is episode 22. Thanks for joining me today. Isham Nation International Sterile Processing Week will be here before you know it. Sterile Processing Week is October 11th through the 17th. With your tireless dedication, your healthcare customers can count on clean and sterile instruments. With your ongoing due diligence and dependable equipment and processing monitoring, surgeries can be performed without delay. With your unwavering adherence to industry standards, best practices, and policies and procedures, patient safety is never sacrificed. All of this is because of you. So make sure you and your department celebrate this week because it is really all about you and the wonderful job you do every day. International Sterile Processing Week, formerly named International Central Service Week, recognizes the committed specialists that fill the sterile processing department and make a difference in patient care. Held annually, Sterile Processing Week starts with the second Sunday in October. Isham celebrates these dedicated professionals for all their outstanding achievements, not just this week, but all year round. It is our hope that International Sterile Processing Week brings the appreciation and respect you so greatly deserve. Isham recognizes you as an essential contributor to the patient safety and quality services. So don't forget the folks in your department. Don't forget your coworkers during this week. You know, looking back, my favorite activity during this week was always the potluck because there's at least two things that SPD folks do well, processing instruments and cooking good food. So again, International Sterile Processing Week, October 11th through the 17th. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Josephine Kalachi. Joe is the Director of the Advocacy Department at Isham. Joe is responsible for legislative activities for Isham. Welcome to the show, Joe. All right, well, thank you, Joe, for joining us today. So as the Government Affairs Director at Isham, can you explain to our listeners your role or what it is that you do for Isham? Thanks, John. Yeah, I know the, the title Government Affairs, I think, throws a lot of people off. So uh, what a Government Affairs Director does is they handle all legislative and regulatory activity. Um, for, for the nonprofit, for the company, and it can be all 50 states in the federal government. And for Isham, um, I, I track legislation in all 50 states and regulations in all 50 states, and then also monitor legislation and regulations on the federal level. In some cases, uh, in large companies, the roles can be split up. Um, they can have people that are just in one section of the country dealing with like five or six states and, and then someone else dealing with the federal level. Um, but for Isham, I handle tracking everything on the, on all 50 states and the federal level. On the Isham website, so there's information that goes through how a bill becomes a law. Can you kind of walk through this process and kind of simplify it for us? 
It is. I think it's hard to read it when you when you read the document that's online. I tried to do it in um, pictures to try to make it a little bit easier. And all the listeners, if, if you guys have been part of our annual conference and been to my legislative sessions, you know that I'm a big fan of playing the I'm just a bill video because that is still relevant today. That's awesome. <laughs> Nothing has really changed. <laughs> and so... Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to try to, to walk everybody through it. When we introduce a piece of legislation in a state, and now every state is different, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, um, but just generally, you uh, have to find a bill sponsor. So a legislator has to be your prime sponsor to introduce it, and you have to have a prime sponsor in the House and the Senate. And um, let's just say the bill is going to start in the House. So we find a prime sponsor and a representative sponsors us in the House. They introduce a bill and it goes through what's called first reading. And that is literally the bill is just read across the desk um, and it's assigned a to a committee. Um, and in a lot of um, places, our bills are assigned to the health committee. And the health committees can be named a lot of different things. It can be called the Public Health Committee, it can be the Health and Human Services Committee, but just generally, we're, we're um, before the Health Committee. So then once it um, is read across the desk and assigned to the, the committee in um, the first chamber, which in our instance is the House, it then has to have a committee hearing. It will be assigned a date at some point where they will take public testimony. And that's when I will come in along with a couple of our members on the ground and we will provide testimony to the legislative committee. That's kind of our chance to take questions from legislators um, and answer anything. And then if any of the opposition shows up, um, they may show up to oppose us. Or if anyone supports us, they show up to support us. But prior to that committee hearing taking place, we have already met with all of the legislators on the committee. We've also probably met with legislators outside of that committee, too. Um, and then uh, the bill will be brought up for a vote by that committee. And in some states, it'll take place that same day, the vote and the public hearing. And in some states, they'll do the public hearing and then they'll do the vote at a later date. And so let's just say they pass it out of the committee. And so at this point, the bill could be assigned to another committee. For example, if there's um, a fiscal impact to the state that's so going to cost the state money, then it would have to go to the Appropriations Committee before it could go to the House floor. But let's just say we don't have to go to the Appropriations Committee, and actually, we most of the time, we don't. Um, and it makes it straight to the House floor. Now it's on the House floor, and you have your prime sponsor um, will stand up on the House floor and introduce the legislation, explain what happens in committee, and it will be heard on what's called second reading. And second reading is where all of the debate occurs. So you will see a lot of legislators get up and talk about the bill, offer amendments to the legislation. Um, it, it, it's the longest point of discussion on the bill. So let's say there's no amendments offered on our bill. It's passed on second reading. And so now we are moving on to the third and final reading in the first chamber. Because remember, we're going to have to do this again. Then on third reading... Uh, which cannot occur on the same day as second reading. So you have to have third reading in a different day. Third reading is normally just an up and down recorded vote. There's not a lot of debate that occurs on third reading. Most of the time, all the amendments have occurred on second reading. 
And so on third reading, they'll just ask all the members of the House, do you vote in favor or do you oppose the legislation? Let's say we make it out. So we pass the House. And now we are on our way to the Senate and we have to do it all over again. (laughs) And so, exactly. And so you'll go through the same exact process that I just described in the Senate. But here's an interesting little tidbit. If the Senate, which in our instance is the second chamber, decides to amend the bill at any point during the process, committee hearing, second reading, whatever, then it has to go and so then let's say it passes that Senate Senate chamber, but it's been amended. It has to go back to the House to concur on the Senate amendment. So does that sound easy? No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> then it's got to go to the governor, right? Then the governor can decide to veto it or can decide to sign it into law or it can become law without the governor's signature. So it's not an easy, quick process in a lot of cases. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so what, what happens if, so at any point in the process, if, if there's a hiccup or something doesn't pass, then, then do you just start all over again? So that's a great question. So yes and no. So it depends. So let's just use, um, I'll give you two different examples. So in Colorado, when we introduced our bill this year, which is 2020, it was introduced, um, and it did not pass by the end of the legislative session. That means we're Colorado is done. They don't come back until January of 2021. We have to start the process all over. And in Colorado's example, we had already passed the Senate and we had passed the House committee. We just needed the House to vote on it. Now, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania are a little different. They run on a two-year cycle where the bills um, roll over. So Colorado does not roll their bills over. And so in Massachusetts, when we introduced the bill in Pennsylvania in January of 2019, we have until the end of December of 2020 to get the bill through. If that doesn't occur, then in January of 2021, we start a new two-year cycle. So it just kind of depends on where you are. And then... There's another nuance because there are some states, Nevada and Texas, that don't meet every year. They meet every other year. Um, and so that would mean that you would have to start those processes over again, too. Yeah, so it, it sounds like every state is just a little bit different. You know, why is that? Uh, because it's how our government was originally set up uh, with the federal government and all of the states. Um, being autonomous uh, and having their own state constitutions and for the states to decide how they wanted to run their state government. And so that that is why. In your opinion, are there states that would be more difficult to pass our legislation than others? So I like the nuance in that question because the nuance in that question was our legislation <laughs> versus <laughs> versus uh, how, you know is it difficult to pass legislation in general? So I want to address both okay. because I want the listeners to know some statistics. I did a little bit of research, uh, and then we'll go, we'll talk specifically about our particular legislation. So um, I did not use the 2020 legislative statistics due to um, COVID-19 and how that has really impacted 
state legislatures. So I use 2018-2019 data, and these are the top 10 states that are the most difficult to pass legislation in, just in general. So the number one hardest state to pass a piece of legislation in is Minnesota. They passed 1.59% of the legislation that is introduced. Oh, wow. Um, number two is Massachusetts. And remember, we have a bill in Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, Massachusetts is uh, only passes 2.59% of the legislation introduced. And then New York is third with 3.17%. So we did pass legislation in New York, so we can be successful in some of these states that seem to be more difficult. Pennsylvania comes in at fourth with 3.36% of legislation passes. Missouri's number five at 5%. Florida's number six at 5.7%. Ohio's number seven at 5.83%. Uh, number eight is South Carolina at 5.92%. Uh, number nine is Connecticut at 6.25%. And then number 10 is New Jersey at 7.17%. So the interesting thing about these stats is we did pass legislation in Connecticut and we did pass legislation in New York. And yes, we have two, two states in this list that we currently have pending legislation. And then just so that in case the listeners are curious, in Colorado, they passed 74% of legislation in 2019. However, they only passed 50% of legislation in 2020. Um, and then Rhode Island is uh, 26.27%. So you can see that it is, you know, those, those numbers are not good. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. Um, But to address your question of our legislation, I think these statistics do play in just in general. And and there are some nuances to it. So, you know, I know some people are probably sitting there right now and they're like, oh, my God, Colorado at 74 percent. Well, here's the difference. Colorado limits um, their legislators to only being allowed to introduce five bills per legislator. So they really limit the number of bills that are introduced um, versus New York, which they introduce about 15,000 pieces of legislation. So there's some of that stuff that, you know, you just wouldn't be able to gather from the from the numbers. But in particular for our legislation, I would say um, these numbers definitely play. Uh, I do think sometimes. Whether or not the legislature is dealing with a lot of healthcare issues at one time comes into play. The makeup of the legislature sometimes plays. Um, we seem to have Democrats favor our bill more so than Republicans. Republicans tend to be anti-regulation in general. However, I say that and I have still gotten unanimous votes in Pennsylvania where it is a Republican held legislature. But then if you counter that with Colorado, we had almost all the Senate Republicans vote no on our bill, but all the Republicans on the House committee vote yes. So it just <laughs> just kind of depends. <laughs> Let's say that an Isham chapter is really motivated and felt that their state should really start this process of introducing certification legislation. What steps should they follow? 
So the first step I would say is please contact me um, because we are trying to make our legislation across the country as uniform as possible, right? We don't want our tech to have to follow um, different laws when they want to take their certification to a different state. So I would say please contact me before you do anything. And then the second thing is we want to hire a lobbyist on the ground. And this is because they have all of the contacts on the ground. And so the chapters um, do help contribute to the lobbyists. And so uh, I'd like to have a conversation with the chapters about that. So I would say, number one, reach out to me and I um, can have a discussion with the chapter about how I think the politics look in the state, what I think our chances would be, and then also combined with how many other pieces of legislation we think we're going to introduce for that year. Okay. So you mentioned a lobbyist. What exactly is a lobbyist and why do you need one? Uh, So a lobbyist is um, kind of an intermediary between, uh, I would say, because they represent us, so they represent Isham, and the legislator. So they are the person that is in the state capitol building every day. Um, They've created all the relationships with all of the elected officials to be able to, you know, utilize those relationships to be able to figure out who our bill sponsor would be, which is critical, you know, who your bill sponsor, who you identify as your main prime bill sponsor is critical to the success of the legislation. I can't do that because I don't know all the legislators in all these different states. So that's why I need an expert on the ground to be able to identify that prime sponsor for us. And then it also, because they have all these relationships created for us, then they can put together for us all the meetings with the legislators. So when I come in with one or two of our members, we've got days where we're on the ground, where we've got back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings, where we're going in and out of legislators' offices all day um, discussing our legislation with them. It would be more difficult for us to do that if I was trying to do that on my own, not having all of these relationships created. The lobbyists They know the legislators, they know the staff members, they know how um, they voted on healthcare type issues before, or in our our issue is not just a healthcare issue, it's a regulating an occupational profession, actually creating a new occupational profession. And so they also know how they voted on those issues. So those are nuances that I'm not going to really know um, without having someone on the ground. And it, it just help us as Isham and us with our members establish and create relationships with these legislators more quickly than we would be able to do without a lobbyist. Every year around Sterile Processing Week, you in collaboration with Isham, they send out a call to action. And now this sends out an email to our elected officials to educate them on our profession. Can you talk about why this is so important? So it's important because... You know, they still, legislators across the country and um, in the United States Congress don't know what our sterile processing techs do. And it's a great opportunity for us to educate them to say, hey, this is our profession, right? This is what we do. This is why we're important. And we've gotten some great reactions from legislators across the country. 
I had a congressman's office in the state of New York reach out to one of our members that sent this email and asked to have a conversation. So the member um, alerted me to it. I set up a conversation with the main healthcare staff person and was able to educate them even more on sterile processing. And so we've had that happen across the country. So I would say, please send those emails. And if you get a response, send them back to me because I keep a file of them and then I follow up with them to give them more information. So I just think it's critical to continue to educate elected officials because they're constantly changing too. Some of them don't win re-election. Some of them are in states that have term limits. So I just think it's it's critically important for us to keep keep doing that. Great. So there you have it. When you get those emails from Isham about sending an email to your elected official, just take the time to do it. it it's quick. It's easy. And it really benefits our profession. And if people do it, we are giving away five free annual conference registrations. And I know we couldn't do it for 2020, so those people would get it for 2021, but we'll add five more for 2021. So if you send it out, I put your name in a list, and there's some program I found in line that randomly selects five, and there you go. You get a free annual conference registration. Hey, hey, you can't beat that. So like you, I live in colorful Colorado. So let's just say hypothetically, that I bump into our governor, who is Jared Polis, governor of the great state of Colorado, on the golf course, and I have the opportunity to talk about sterile processing legislation. Are there things that I shouldn't say if I had this opportunity? Yes, there are. And um, and so I would say, do not use the word mandate. <laughs> Whatever you do. <laughs> not use the word mandate. <laughs> you can say there's sterile processing legislation pending in the Colorado legislature right now, which would require, not mandate, require sterile processing technicians to be certified. I know it seems like a nuance, but the word mandate has just been so demonized. Um, on really both sides of the aisle, that we just have to stay away from that word. Recently, you gave a presentation at the Isham Online Conference, virtually, and it was great as usual. Uh, You presented some videos and some audio content of the legislation bill for sterile processing certification being discussed, Uh, and and it was great. I, I loved it. The one thing that really stood out to me was that these folks, the legislators, even our supporters of the bill, had really no clue what sterile, what the sterile processing profession did or what we do. Uh, and I believe there was one guy that was talking about drug diversion. Do you find this unusual? No, this is not unusual. And I was showing it because I was trying to make the point that even when we hire a lobbyist on the ground and we have spent a lot of time with those legislators that got up to speak that day, educating them on the issue, explaining the issue, giving them talking points. They still didn't get it right. So imagine trying to do that without a lobbyist, right? It, it would be, I think, even more difficult. 
they have so many pieces of legislation in front of them. Like I gave the example that New York's got 15,000 bills that are introduced. Yeah. It, they, they're just dealing with so many different things at one time that that's why you see the confusion when they're discussing an issue and you see, um, I think the one guy that got up there was also talking about anesthesiology tech and something that had happened uh, in an ambulatory surgery center in Colorado with an uh, anesthesiology tech. But yeah, so that is exactly why you see what I think is the confusion. And this happens everywhere we go. I mean, listen, uh, we've had legislators, and now this has happened to me in multiple states, where they just look at us in a meeting and say, I think that they just don't they just throw all the instruments away after every case. <laughs> so there's a narrative out there that people think surgical instruments are thrown away, wow. <laughs> which is crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> okay. So there are some lawmakers out there who don't want to see our bill passed. Why is there such opposition for our legislation? So the biggest opposition is, um, it be, so, you know, we look at this as a healthcare bill. However, I think I mentioned earlier, it is really creating a new occupational profession. And when you're doing that, legislators tend to think there will be a license associated with it. There will be a new board that has to be convened on the state level, which would require a fiscal impact to the state. A lot of states don't have money. Well, a lot of states in our federal government don't have money now because of the whole COVID thing. So that's made that worse. So a lot of Republicans don't like regulation. They are anti-regulation. Even if there's no fiscal impact, they just think that the government should not have to interfere. And we've made our legislation so that there's no fiscal impact. We're not asking the state to create a board or the state to create a certification. We're just pointing to certifying bodies, requiring it in statute, grandfathering everyone in so you don't have to take the certification. So it's not an, an onerous thing uh, on the hospital system. But there are just some legislators out there that are just anti-regulation in general and will vote no. It's why we had the Senate Republicans in Colorado vote no. Um, we could not convince them that even with no fiscal impact to the state, you know, no burden to the state, they were just a blanket. We are opposed to regulation in general. So last question, Joe, will you be presenting at the 2021 Isham Annual Conference? And what everybody wants to know is, will there be music? Yes, I will be presenting at the 2021 Isham Annual Conference. And come on, of course there will be music. <laughs> of course there will be music. <laughs> well, great. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for really what you do. It's really a complex process. And we are really uh, grateful that we have you to intercede for our profession. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for taking your time today. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Joe, for speaking with us today. As Joe said, she will be speaking at the next annual conference in Columbus, which is always a great session. And in case you didn't know it, 
Joe also puts on a Saturday workshop at the conference to educate folks in kind of a smaller setting. So again, thank you, Joe. It was great talking to you. Isham Nation, that's it for today. Episode 22 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code ColorfulColorado. Again, the code for this episode is ColorfulColorado. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Ism Nation, and we'll see you next time.